Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there. The Rewatchingtons, bomb in its full Ooh. and unadulterated cut, early drops of Cinephobe episodes, and so much more. You said the OG pod. Now, is it new or is it old? Mace, I'm glad you asked that. It is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old OG pod. Oh. So it's me, Zach, Trey, Waz, Tom. I love those guys. Just like we always were. Going back to the True Hoop days, mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic, recapturing it, and putting it back out. We're talking hoops. We're talking pop culture. And most importantly, we're talking for 40 minutes for free. Mm-hmm. But then another specific Patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes. Funny enough about that OG pod, you're getting Tom and Trey on Mondays. You're getting me and Waz, aka Zosny, on Wednesdays. Amin's floating in between. I'm a floater. You never know when you're going to get Amin in those, so you got to listen to them all. And what if I'm not sure what Maze looks like? Because I've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora. He's got a weird voice. How can I see for myself what this Maze character actually looks like? It's crazy you don't know the answer to this. Hmm. because it's the Cinephobe Pod YouTube page. What? The CT5s on the Cinephobe Pod YouTube page. You can look at all of us. You can get all the OG pods on YouTube too at CountTheDings1 on YouTube, at Cinephobe Pod on YouTube, patreon.com slash CountTheDings gets you everything all in one feed. You can link it to your Spotify. And now enjoy the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pack your knives. I'm Kevin Ornovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, how do you like your chicken? Ooh, that is a great question. Considering this weekend, Kevin, was the NBA All-Star Weekend, and one of the venues that they had here at All-Star Weekend was the Bojangles Coliseum. In college, we called it Bojangles. Just had a, a soft a, a soft J. And uh, it is the fried chicken of... The fried chicken staple of North Carolina. So there's Popeyes, there's KFC. In North Carolina, it's Bojangles. Wait, I understand. There's a Colise- is it like the old Coliseum down on the south end? It is not. The old Coliseum has been since demolished. The Charlotte Coliseum, where Del Curry, uh, where the ni- Del Curry played for, and the the '91 All Star Game was held at the Charlotte Coliseum, has since been demolished. And now it is. Uh, it's you know, a Bojangles. Sec- the second it might be a Bojangles actually the second locate the second arena which houses I think the the Checkers which is um, also fried chicken but the Checkers local hockey team 
plays at the Bojangles Coliseum. It's just like five minutes down the road from my house. Um, and they also do like, you know, the, the B-level musical acts or, you know, what have you. The roller derby. Um, oh, we'll go through I there. I love roller derby. <laughs> it's huge here. So Bojangles is the uh, the Popeyes of North Carolina, and in college we would always get the tailgate full of Popeyes chicken and biscuits, the famous chicken and biscuits, and I would always just get the Cajun fillet biscuit sandwich, which is so delicious, and, and the biscuits are so buttery and and oh, it is amazing. So um, if I had to choose between the three, let's just say KFC, Bojangles, or uh, I know this isn't the question you're asking, but I'm going to go with Popeye's. I know that makes me a traitor. I'm, I know that makes me not a, a North Carolina resident by trade, uh, but I do think Popeye's has the best. If I'm going through the Atlanta airport, Kevin, and I get a whiff of that Louisiana chicken uh, kitchen, it is it is really hard to turn down. See, I, I mean, I, I in that trio, I go Bojangles. And, and again, I talked about this on this show, which is the thing the rest of the country does not understand is the sheer genius of the morning protein and biscuit and when i say protein i mean a piece of meat that has been battered and fried um to to the to the to its limit uh and the salty juiciness oh, of i mean a, oh, again yeah. the steak i've talked about the country steak biscuit which you cannot really find outside of i mean i don't think you, you have a hard time finding it even once you get out of sort of the immediate southeast even in the border states you you, you start you the chicken the Chicken fried steak biscuit, or just the steak biscuit, is to me, I mean, one of the great American delicacies. And I grew up with it, and it was sort of this this thing that when I went north to school, I, the fact that it didn't exist anywhere else was un- incomprehensible to me. I will say that among the southern fast food fried chickens, don't sleep on churches. Don't mm. sleep on ch- – I was always – I was partial to churches. And uh, though I, I, will, I will not reject any of your nominees. Uh, and also, I will not reject Mrs. Winners, which was another – uh, southern chain, I believe, uh, kind of a, you know, one of those uh, kind of second tier fast food. In 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 Kentucky, uh, I don't know if you remember this, Kevin, and maybe maybe you don't, because I don't know if uh, if you remember such things from you know it was, it was it was seemingly decades ago. But for our wedding in Louisville, there are two things here from this episode that were uh, full circle back to the wedding with uh, in in Louisville, which was the gift bag was actually in the form of a Kentucky fried chicken bucket. Oh, so I for all that. the so for all the guests for our wedding in the hotel at the front desk was uh, a little gift bag with little trinkets and it was in Kentucky fried chicken buckets uh, which was really nice. But I I actually, you know, I feel bad not only did I I I, I was a trader on Bojangles, but I you know, I I have some roots there in Kentucky, so I feel bad about that. But also my rehearsal dinner, Kevin, the rehearsal dinner after uh, you know the the rehearsal at the church down the street, we did it at the Ali Center, the museum for Muhammad Ali. So this episode had two little connections to my wedding uh, weekend. So it was really, I thought, an excellent episode, um, and I thought the quick fire was fantastic. I love these blind taste tests. So I thought it was a an, a really good, another strong episode with uh, again really cool kentucky themed events and i thought it was great yeah so as you mentioned the blind herb test which i'm really curious i was actually thinking about perhaps administering one uh for myself here at home since i do have a spice rack and a really fun exercise and it it was kind of fascinating to see I'm, i'm really curious to see how i would do and justin 
was the only of the six contestants who failed to get salt. And, and I've heard, <laughs> by the way, I've heard this from other chefs, that at a certain point your taste buds almost, almost become a nerd to anything. That, like, it is really hard as a chef to kind of maintain that. Um, ironically, as you kind of climb up, you know, the letter, letter, ladder of prestige, you sort of – it becomes harder and harder for you to actually taste your food. Also, I thought was very interesting is Sarah – and we'll talk about this. She kind of used her olfactory senses. It's like you don't put it on your tongue. You put it under your nose if you yes. want to get the best results. She wins – uh, by the way, just, just for our scores, she didn't win the actual – actually, she didn't win the actual competition. But but each contestant had to – they would only allow to work with the herbs they guessed correctly. So she got 12. Kelsey finished with 11. Everybody else was in the 7 to 6 range. Everyone except Justin got salt, so he had to compensate for that absence of salt in his dish. And Sarah wins again. She is coming on. We're going to be talking to her later in this episode – I don't recall kind of a late surge or a mid-late surge, Tom, quite like Sarah in recent seasons, where four or five weeks ago, I was speaking of her as as quite possibly among a very good field, yes, but the person next likely to be eliminated. And she has won more individual challenges. She and Eric have really kind of separated themselves from the field. Really have. uh, This was a... For winners, this was a huge episode for you uh, and and Team Kevin. Um, And Sarah, did you know, Kevin, that Sarah had a biological advantage doing the the smell test and the taste test? Why? If you look at the numbers here, Kevin, I looked at the analytics. Adrian got six. Kelsey got 11. uh, Sarah got 12. The men had six, seven, and six. So the women got 29 flavors correct. And the men got 19. And it got me thinking, Kevin, is there any science to back up that women are better than men at identifying odors or tastes? And according to NPR, a story uh, from NPR in 2015, they looked at this very thing, which is are women biologically more predisposed to having an acute sense of smell or a better palate or uh, better taste buds, uh, more accurate taste buds than men? And what they found is... There's two huge studies. Uh, In 2005, in the Chemical Sense uh, Journal, they found out that women of reproductive age had up to five times magnitude better sense of smell than men. Which might explain the whole, like, pregnant women like weird or, or just have cravings. Yes, my um, my wife when she, when she was pregnant with our first child, just had like daily cravings and day, daily aversions. So like each day when she was pregnant, it was like a totally different sense of palate and cravings and appetite. One day she hated cucumbers, the next day she hated zucchini, uh, and then she she falls in love with cucumbers like a week later. It was just it was so crazy, but. They were like, ah, in this study, they were like, okay, the, the scientists were like, let's try to replicate this. They did another study where they tra- they thought maybe maybe training or like somehow in their sample size, the women just were uh, – had training or were chefs or maybe, you know, there was a, uh, an, an unfair advantage for women in this study. So they trained both men and women to like – Basically, went, they went through a training academy to learn the senses of, of spices or sense of smell or whatnot and train their noses. And what they found is that the magnitude went up to 11 times the strength. So when they of, replicated the study, it actually magnified the – The effect, the, yes. The effect, the, the olfactory 
advantage or effect that biological women have. That's interesting. So, um, so I, I'm like, what? What is here? So what they did was they like they did taste tests or odor tests, and they lowered the levels of that that thing and tried to see how long the women at various ages could detect what that odor or thing was. And they just up to 11 times magnitude stronger than the men. Women of of reproductive age, maybe not younger women or older women, but in reproductive age, they were able to just have this laser sense of of taste and smell. So looking at this, and I, I, I... I didn't re I didn't really get a sense in this NPR piece that they had a really good explanation for why I mean maybe pregnant women um, or women of reproductive age just need evolutionarily need to have a sense of what's good for them or bad for them uh, to protect their child. Yeah, well, um, if you're an evolutionary biologist and you listen to this show, we would love to hear your thoughts. Yes, so they, the women outscored in this quickfire test, and I don't think it's an anecdotal uh, evidence. I think there is some science to back up that women have an advantage in these things. And poor Adrian with the uh, dried time, dried time, dried time, dried time. Ah, and she didn't and get it. And they finally it, had time, and she didn't get it. It was very funny. <laughs> yeah. um, so Adrian, so it's interesting. Uh, Adrian was finished near the top with the Moroccan chicken. She ends up getting kind of a, kind of a bizarre collection of spices, but um, turmeric and sage – is the, are the one she turns to. She does an orange salad. The acid works really well with the savory chicken. You know, she gets uh, on the top. Eddie is also on the top. He did a, this red sauce out of Serrano and Fresno peppers that everyone just fell for mm. uh, with his double breaded chicken. Very interesting. Sarah just goes straight up fried chicken. There's no Moroccan. There's no I'm going to do a chicken katsu like like Justin. There's no hot chicken. It is straight up fried chicken with a corn and blackberry salad that looked lovely. Uh, she wins the quick fire challenge. Uh, poor Justin doesn't get to use salt, so has to compensate uh, with um, a kind of soy sauce and uh, and whatnot, and ends up with kind of a, a he tries to go for that chicken katsu feel. Yeah, just overcooked it, and just it just it just was too thing. dark. I mean, and it, he was yeah. he was he was working with a losing hand. He he just had to make uh, lemonade out of lemons. Didn't succeed, but that's okay. Um, Sarah's first individual win, um, apparently. But, uh, you know, she takes the five G's, the $5,000, and that leads us to the Muhammad Ali Center, Tom. Yeah, so the, the Ali Center, we, we had a rehearsal dinner in the art room um, where it was, you know, it was a, it's a, an amazing uh, story, Muhammad Ali uh, coming up from Louisville. He used to be called the, the Louisville Lip uh, because he was such a good talker, and we had, I think, um, Eric... I think this was just uh, this was the Eric show. I mean, it has been the Eric show for for what the last six week episodes, just on a roll. Yeah, and I don't recall ever having been more happy for an individual chef for winning oh, than man. I was for Eric this challenge. So you know, for what what they essentially did is they had they six touchstone moments in Muhammad Ali's career from his first fight at Freedom Hall in Louisville. Uh, the rematch versus Sonny Liston and Lewiston, Maine, the fight of the century, which was Ali and Smoke and Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden, often regarded as sort of like one of the greatest fights of all time. The rumble in, in the jungle, which, is, which was in Kinshasa versus George Foreman. Uh, there was a great documentary about that um, when we were kings several years ago. I'm, I'm so old, mm. I don't even freaking remember. 
Thrilla in Manila in the Philippines, which was another rematch against Frazier. And then the Battle of New Orleans against Leon Spinks. By the way, Leon Spinks produced one of the greatest Sports Illustrated covers of all time, um, if I remember correctly. It's just like him, like his name, Leon, and just this wide grin with the gap where his two teeth are missing. Spinks sort of came on the scene in the late 70s and was a really interesting prospect of a fighter. Had a nice career, but there was sort of like and, and Spinks took him to the limit. I mean, that was, I, if I recall correctly, like that Ali Spinks fight, and, you know, Ali's in the late latter stages of his career, but I believe it went to like the judges. So um, Spinks was sort of, so. It, but obviously you've got some geographical significance to these six categories. Cook a meal that's reminiscent of New Orleans or the Philippines or Africa or, or hey, you could go like, it was really hot in the ring in this fight or it was a really quick fight, you know, like Lewiston, Maine, the two minute. Um, and so the chefs had to correspond with the fight and kind of come up with a dish that told his story. Tom, one thing I think that's notable, and I think when we get to the final results, it's clear, is, yeah, I just can't remember a season when it was more intent for the chefs to nail the narrative element, the storytelling element, that their plate and dish conform to the theme. And it's just a very interesting twist because, again, I just felt like in the past, yeah, yeah. You should do something that conforms to this. And, and if, you, if you're if you as absolutely just if, – if you're unabashed and you're ignoring of it the way Brother Luck was, we're going to ding you. But as long as you at least speak to the theme, you're going to be okay. Not so, Tom. Not so. They are putting a premium on storytelling. They have put the chefs on notice. You will cook food that conforms to this parameter or you're going to end up on the chopping block. That is the story. Literally. And I guess it's the difference between a cook and a chef is like the chef has to be creative and come up with these dishes and own the room and own the kitchen and have a, a better sense of narrative or, you know, building a restaurant out. And I think that's what they're trying to play you, up. You want to go? Let's go through. Let, 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 you want to go through and kind of catalog what went down sort of before just kind of like let's throw it out. Right. Um, round one. And we're, not, we're just going to lay out the dishes, not tell you the winner, although presumably, you know, Sarah is very put out by the fact that she is getting in the Kentucky pigeonhole once again, being asked to do Kentucky food. I appreciate that. I appreciate that too. You want to kind of expand, you know, she's on, she's got some confidence now. She really wants to branch out. She's tired of being the regional chef. Damn it. She doesn't mind carrying the mantle for as the hometown girl, but you know what? Enough of this. I can do a lot more things, but she randomly, they, they kind of put it, uh, put pieces of paper, decide which chef's going to get, which did she gets stuck with Louisville, and boy, does she make the best of it. I didn't even know about Thunder and Lightning, Tom. I wasn't familiar with that dish. Uh, I wasn't either, and she nailed it. Um, I, like, she and she was nervous uh, talking to everybody in the room with the mic, and I totally get that, and yet she nailed that too. I felt like she just um, she embraced the, the Kentucky aspect of this, bouncing back from last week and being, you know, kind of roasted about the homemade thing at, at Rupp Arena, which was her little cathedral there. Uh, I thought she had an amazing job. And not just because we're going to interview her later in the show, Kevin. I thought she just did an amazing right. job, and the, and the chefs did too. And this is one of the beauties of food, right? Like thunder and lightning. Well, what the hell is thunder and lightning? What, what, I've never heard of that dish. It is literally when you see thunder and lightning in Kentucky, in regions of the Mid-South, you know that the rain is going to basically and the storm is going to push a lot of stuff that's sitting on your vine on your farm onto the ground and ruin it. So you go grab as fast as you can the stuff that's going to be damaged. It's usually tomatoes and cucumbers and you bring them in. And so it's a kind of a pickled tomato and cucumber, almost a salad relish. Uh, and then she does beaten gin cured salmon, puts those two things together. It's a light dish. Um, 
but it wins the competition. Very exciting. Round two was Justin doing the 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 fight in Lewiston, Maine against Sonny Liston. Uh, now I want to take issue with Tom a little bit. He says, "Hey, hey, you know," because Justin immediately thinks seafood, and Tom's like, "Ah, Lewiston, Maine's nowhere near the ocean." Well, Tom, all right, Mister Geography, you know it's twenty <laughs> miles from the coast. Like, let's put it this way, Tom, my home in central in central Los Angeles is about fifteen miles from the coast, but I live in Los Angeles, which everybody would consider a coastal city by every stretch, right? Um, so you know what, like, ah, yeah, come on. So I thought it was a little uncharitable. It, Lewiston, Maine is not caribou, Maine, but Justin goes with a light and luscious, uh, you know, cream saffron soup with, with seafood. And, um, what's so amazing, Tom, is we're at the point in this competition where, you know, he comes away, certain the chefs love it. And he ends up in the, basically what we would call the bottom two that they don't designate it. Uh, which I thought was very interesting, really just because, why? Storytelling. Uh, you just went with seafood because mm. it was in Maine. Bah. Well, then, um, I, I wasn't there a critique, I for, forget who from, but that it wasn't, it was a lukewarm dish and therefore the, sea, the seafood might not have been cooked properly or at least it didn't heat up as well. Maybe it was underdone. Yeah, and, and so... You know, maybe there was no wow factor, and that was sort of, I think, we're now at the stage of the season. It gets really exciting. Oh, yeah, splitting hairs. You know, exactly, where great dishes are going home or very good dishes are going home, which brings us to Eddie. And as you said, he did the brown butter roast chicken. It looked like an Eddie plate. It was technically adept. Uh, A a roast chicken with a green, a collard green puree, this nice jus that everybody liked, and toasted hazelnuts to give it texture, right? So, I mean, this was a lovely plate of food. Um, but again, and, and this is what's problematic about being so cerebral, and I, as somebody who's been often accused of kind of thinking my way out of success at times, um, when you're just kind of a neurotic, like Eddie is, and, and I can relate, that he just kind of overthought the competition. New York, Madison Square Garden, oh, Hudson Valley, 40 miles north is where they raise lots of ducks. Let's do duck. They don't have duck. Yeah. What's the next thing next to duck? Chicken. Meanwhile, you're losing the sheer... I mean, he what he was handed was the greatest boxing fight possibly in history among. And I'm not a boxing connoisseur. I, I used to kind of love the history of it. But that I mean, what he was handed was one of the greatest fights in the history. That is a fight that people just that was before there was a must see TV for our generation. There was this fight. It was one of the most viewed fights ever. And, you know, roasted chicken. Eh. And I think we all agree that roasted chicken is a, always a very sound, safe satisfying but unexceptional plate, right? Like the greatest roast chicken you've ever had, and I've had some good roasted chicken, is roasted chicken, right? And so he gets sent home. I mean, this is a bombshell, Tom. Eddie, leading the competition, widely regarded as the morning line favorite, gets sent home. And why? Not because he didn't prepare the chicken perfectly, which he did, but because he failed to embrace the narrative features of storytelling is king kevin no no there was there was they felt that it wasn't it didn't have any pop that's what i'm saying but but no not the story it wasn't about the story it was more about the the fact that the dish didn't pop like it it was a good dish it was it was perfectly fine it was fine, but there wasn't any like wow factor, which, yes, it could be a derivative of the fact that he didn't nail the narrative or that the narrative co- confused him or he, he just got, you know, as he said, he kind of screwed up on his um, the storytelling aspect with the cake and his wife. 
um, episode where he had to do a music memory. Um, so like, yes, I think maybe the, the, the basis for that dish was the story element, but I think he could have, he could have spiced up that dish. He could have had a wow factor. Yeah, no, 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 it I was agree. a chicken dish. But I, yeah. I do think like, let's say he had drawn number one and he's like, Hey, I'm still going to stick with chicken and collard game puree. Cause it's Kentucky and freedom hall. And you know, you could create a story around that dish and, you're um, right. and, and I right. think, but I do think that like, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, but, the, but I do think his, they seemed put out by his, you know, kind of lack of embrace again of, of, of this thing. Meanwhile, let's get to Eric cause we're bearing the lead. Um, we talked about how this was one of the more, I, I think triumphant moments I've ever seen on, on top chef. Um, you know, Ali's standing as one of the great kind of global icons. I mean, I think one of the things that was so resonant about Ali was just, and, and you saw it in in Kinshasa. You saw it when he went to the Philippines. He was, before Michael Jordan, before anyone, he was truly, Tom, the first iconic global athlete where no matter what continent you were from, no matter what sport you liked, um, no matter what your background, Ali was truly a global figure at a time before social media, before all of this media, where, you know, global icons were farther and fewer between, and rarely did they come from the world of sports because we were factionalized. Like the Brits had their own sport thing with soccer. Americans liked this strange thing with the oblong football. A lot of the, you know, part of the world played cricket. You know, like there were no global icons, and Ali was the first great individual global icon which in Ali Bumaye Exactly Bumaye Rumble in the Jungle just I mean come on how 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 uh unapologetically like he is the most uh, transparent human being and was unapologetic about who he was what he believed in and for a long time in America that was not okay it was like get in your lane Ali and I think this is uh, the dish that it, it kind of all came together for Eric. I mean, um, emotionally, a lot of people might crater because of the weight of what uh, uh, a, a Ghana American chef would have to represent by having this dish, uh, having this story. And he not just cooked the fufu, but just nailed every every piece of that. And I think Tom captured it, you know, correctly, which was, man, this. This dish, you might not have been able to cook this dish in America uh, sixty years ago, fifty years ago, uh, but ten now, years ago, ten. I mean, you 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 tell me. Um, but see, when, see, we talked about when was the first time you saw fufu at a restaurant? I, and, and I saw it in Ghana in two thousand and seven. And, and here's the thing: I, I just want to emphasize this: the degree of difficulty. Forget the fact that oh, it's unfamiliar to American palates. Forget that, which is true. Fufu is hard. It can be – so many things can go wrong. It can be too pasty. It can be too slimy or too hard or too thin or too loose. And like it is not an easy thing to nail, especially for a 100-some-odd people. Like forget just, oh, it's strange. It is a very – I mean this is kind of like doing uh, risotto. I mean it, it is that hard, Tom. Like it is – it is very difficult. Uh, I also saw on Twitter someone's notion that, that his plate was so beautiful because it had the colors of of the um, the Ghanaian flag, which actually were the colors of the flag of Zaire, where the fight took place. Zaire is no longer when Mobutu was ousted of 20 years ago. I think it was about 20 years ago. They changed the name of the country, and they also, Tom, got rid of the coolest flag in the history of flags. Do you remember the old oh, Zaire flag with the arm holding up the torch? 
Yes. That was the flag of the nation of Zaire. And I don't understand for the life of me. I know you rebrand the country. You rename the country Congo. But you got rid of the greatest flag ever. And Mobutu, very problematic historical figure. But damn, was he stylish and knew a good flag when he saw one. And I just don't <laughs> understand how you get rid I'm Eric. Uh, listen, Tom. There's no other place I can rant about this, so I, I'm just going to say, like, what did they do? They got rid of the coolest national flag ever, the Zaire flag. Anyway, but the degree of difficulty, the symbolic meaning. This is one of the most dramatic, triumphant moments in Top Chef history. And I got to say, Sarah and him both got the like hometown dish, like I, the draws that they got, and they don't want to be pigeonholed, but they both embraced it, and I think that was really, really cool because. You know, um, in this, in this, we, we always hear it. It's the same trope about Top Chef is like, just do the dish. Don't be, don't try to do too much. Just do the dish. Do you. And this was kind of emblematic of that. Right. And just to uh, round up. So, so Sarah and, and Eric were on the top. The other four were quote on the bottom, but it, again, Padma said it right up top. This is now nitpicking. And it, it, I've never, I don't recall a, a, ta- a, a judge's table with th- this many people still in it where, Instead of getting dressed down, you're basically, you know, getting complimented. Adrian kind of ran into it. There was kind of a tease where I thought Adrian was going home because, Tom, that moment where they are in the uh, oh, in the yeah. kitchen and Adrian's like, yeah, I got Manila and uh, I know Southeast Asia and, and, the, and the judges are right. Like Filipino food does not bear much resemblance to Vietnamese food. It just doesn't. It's different flavors. The, the Portuguese and, and Iberian, not, not Portuguese, the Spanish influence over there. Uh, it's a it's a much more, less subtle taste, I think, than Vietnamese food. Um, it's not as bright. It's more like savory gravies. I mean, it really is, um, you know, you think about chicken adobo. I mean, it's, it's a completely different way to go. And so she mm-hmm. very intelligently, Tom, says, okay, Pivots. I don't yes. know shit about Filipino food. I'm not going to pretend to know shit about Filipino food. I've been busted. What's the next kind of feature here? Oh, it was hot. I'm going to bring the heat. And she brings the heat. She braises a short rib. And to no one's surprise, she does not win for braising a short rib. But she she plays well. She gets the mango herb salad on top, uh, brings the heat. Yeah, and uh, you know, for the same reason that um, for this, she almost went home for the same reason that Sarah got uh, roasted last episode, which was that she used like a, a store bought hot sauce instead of making it her own. So that was, I thought she might have been sent home too, Kevin, for that very reason. Is like, hey, not all the ingredients were prepared by you. Yeah, and Kelsey distinguished herself once again. Didn't finish on top, didn't lose, but did the bread pudding, the dessert course, Battle of New Orleans. She did corn three ways. Uh, somebody didn't like the candied corn. It reminded me of Tom's, you know, every time I see somebody say do way, two ways, they should just do one way, right? <laughs> that was um, great. Yeah. But, you know, she, she picks a good dish. Everyone cooked well. The, there's a lot of depth this season. And uh, Eric is, I mean, do you want to go through the scores or just really quickly before we bring on our guest? Yeah, um, 51, Eric, back-to-back wins. Last episode on on Pack Your Knives, we we. We warned him about the the boomerang effect, the 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 sophomore slump or the the hangover effect this season that we've seen, where guys 
like Eddie win, you know, an episode, win the elimination challenge and then lose the next few weeks. And then finally he's kicked to the curb. But he doesn't. He comes back with back-to-back wins, just like Nini did earlier in the season. And we just had our first multiple winner last week. And now he goes and repeats, Kevin. So he's got 51 points, leading Team Kevin, which has 137. Eddie is sent home. And I don't know if we want to – I think we'll do this maybe later. But uh, Eddie's sent home to Last Chance Kitchen. Uh, Michelle – uh, who is at Last Chance Kitchen now, um, who is technically still in. Then Sarah has 30 points there in second place for Team Kevin. Uh, you have 137. I have 109. And I got hurt this week, Kevin, because of the whole bottom three thing where Kelsey, Justin, and Adrian put out good dishes, but they were in the bottom. So Justin got zero points. Kelsey got zero points. And Adrian uh, got one point for being, I, I believe, was a, a finalist in the quick fire. Uh, otherwise... You have the two top remaining chefs, 30 points for Sarah, 51 for Eric, and then I have Justin at 29, Kelsey at 29, Adrian at 29. But, Kevin, real quick, Eddie goes home to Last Chance Kitchen. They prepare. We'll do this quickly, okay? Yeah, yeah run through it. Let's do it. They have to do, uh, when they got knocked down, a knockout punch from Michelle and Eddie. They had to do the challenge of a knockout punch and do a dish representative of that story of how they got back because a, a boxers have to get back up after hitting the mat. So Eddie and Michelle go head to head. They both, I think, had really solid dishes. Uh, but Kevin, one of your members came back into the competition. Who is it? Michelle is coming back. I'm very Woo. excited about this. I mean, I'm sorry we don't get to. Uh, Eddie's just been a fantastic contestant. He's put <sighs> out some beautiful food, but very excited to see Michelle come back. I do think as the challenges get more refined, assuming they do, I still think in a four-hour table of eight situation, she is as strong as anybody in this competition. I think it just it, it's just hundred people know she's a very she has a very particular skill set, but I think she is so strong. And typically speaking, as the hello listener, guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about butcher box. Butcher box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then it's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, 
or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Competition progresses. They do become more refined. It's more you get a little more elbow room to make your food. And I think Michelle is going to be a threat. I think she is a contender to be in the final two. And this is going to be really interesting. Just like Joe Flam last year. Joe Flam came back in, in Last Chance Kitchen, came back with a vengeance and, and was the uh, ultimate Top Chef winner. So, man, we have the finalists. It is Eric, Sarah, Michelle, Justin, Kelsey, and Adrian. And with that, Kevin, let's bring on our next guest. Kevin, on the other line, we have Sarah Bradley from Paducah, Kentucky. Kevin, what is her nickname? I mean, and I hope it is not pejorative or triggering, but this is the Paducah Jew. And and Sarah, I say this with the greatest (laughs) affection. I've been waiting for a Southern Jewish contestant because my entire being as like how I'm obviously an amateur cook, but Southern Jewish food is like my thing. I've always, I've always said I need a Southern food Jewish, uh, Southern Jewish food truck. I, I, this is the intersection of those two traditions have never been fully revealed on Top Chef, and you're the embodiment of it, and it's made me so excited. I'm just, I'm, I'm over the moon here. Well, good. I think that, uh, you know, I think it happens all the time. Like, you know, the way people say bacon fat, we say chicken fat. You know, it's like such a, such a connection. So I was glad to. I was actually very happy to be nicknamed the Paducah Jew. Uh, and it, it, <laughs> no, it was a term of of the utmost endearment. Um, and uh, so, like, how is this experience for you? It's crazy. Um, Especially the last you know, two I, weeks, right? The very emotional last couple of weeks yeah, for you on the show. I know. I know. You know, I never really thought about being on Top Chef. I watched it. I was always a fan of it. But when I heard it was coming to Kentucky, that's what really pushed me and made me want to try to be there. Because, I mean, you know, you're your wife is from Kentucky. You're, you've been to Kentucky a million times, you know, people have this pride. And so was like, Oh man, I might have the chance to represent my state. I got to do it. Oh man. So I, I, I thought they've done, whirlwind. I, I think they've done an amazing job of representing Kentucky so far in this, as someone who's visited and spent many, many, uh, much time in Kentucky. I feel like this, just the production, uh, the themes of every episode thus far have been very, very uh, authentic to Kentucky. And even though Kentucky Fried Chicken might, Kentucky Fried Chicken might be a chain, and it's just this big corporate conglomerate, yum, you know, the yum, uh, big corporate center. But like, I, I thought uh, this episode with with Muhammad Ali uh, at. I just told the listeners that I actually got my, my rehearsal dinner the night before my wedding was at the Ali Center. And it's a beautiful oh museum. It's overlooking the Ohio River. Uh, and it's just it's it's a it's a real gem in downtown Louisville. So you have to go there if 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 you want to experience some of the culture and the history of the Louisville lip. But I would say uh, both you and Eric this episode both had 
the task of representing basically your background, your your home, your story, your upbringing, uh, where you live. And you feel like you don't want to be pigeonholed as just the Kentucky chef, right? And I thought that was fascinating that you, in this episode, you felt like you didn't want to be just branded as the only thing you can do is just Kentucky things. And yet here you were coming out on top uh, with Eric, uh, both just nailing these dishes. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think it was, um, I think it was a, a repercussion of the week before, the, prior to that, you know, like here I am, lifelong dream, standing in the middle of Rep Arena, like on the floor in front of Coach Cal, bands everywhere, and, you know, and I didn't perform well. Well, actually, I didn't not perform well. I just got, I just got, you know, tackled for a, a decision I made, but, um, but so then I thought, man, I don't want to represent Kentucky. I, I, you know, I was like, well, I, I want to do something different. Sean, I can do something other than that. But as soon as I started really reading into the dossier and started reading the words, I thought this is crazy for me to not fully embrace this. I mean, this is the food that I cook. You know, I've lived all over the South and I was in New York for a long time in Chicago. And I moved home to Paducah to cook this kind of regional cuisine that is based off oral traditions. And I thought, why in the world would I not do this? So it, I think it did work out well. And, you know, hopefully you'll see more from me in the, you know, next week doing Kentucky food. Yeah. So, uh, I have, uh, we got to go back to the, the waffle mix. So did, did you feel like, um, because Kevin and I talked about it on the pod, like the ingredients in the Whole Foods waffle mix is natural ingredients where it's not like you're get like it, it isn't it, like I likened it to like getting Italian seasoning where it's just the natural. It's just mixed pre mix and it saved you a lot of time. And you got dealt a really tough blow with the fryer not working. And that actually kind of saved you. That was a, a strategy that actually probably helped you. And it, like like I know you weren't get, able to get that kind of mic time on the show, but. Is there anything uh, that the production you, we didn't get to see that? Hey, Sarah, you have the mic now, so go. Let's talk about this. You know, it would have been editing. Editing's a, a tough thing, and you know they can't show everything. It would have been super dope if they would have shown that not only did my fryers not work prior to coming out, but once we got to the floor, my waffle irons did not work. Okay. Oh, so, do we think? Is yeah, there like not to be yeah. a conspiracy theorist? Are we are we safe to assume that among <laughs> contestants, that when there is a snafu like that, it is understood that the producers are fucking with you? I, I don't I don't know I don't think they're messing with us. I think they're just, um, you know, like I have a kitchen. It's been up for four years. We, you know, we scrub it down. We take care of the equipment. We work hard on everything, and stuff still goes wrong, you know, all the time. Like mm. we go to fire up the grill and it doesn't work, and here it's been working for four years perfectly, and all of a sudden, you know, and they're setting up kitchens in the middle of Rupp Arena or on the middle of a house, you know, a lake or wherever it is that things aren't working. And I think it's just, uh, it's like, they feel just as bad as we do. Um, I really do think they try to give everybody, um, the best product, the best quality, the best plates, the, the right equipment to put out the best food that they can. It just doesn't always work out. No, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I mean, it's good to know. And this wasn't a criticism of the show. In fact, I would compliment them for their, um, for their sort of yeah. uh, wicked creativity and sort of <laughs> putting these sand traps all over the course for you guys. Like, there's something to be said for that. But I, you know, it's just it's been pronounced this season. And what's amazing is again, and I, I, I say this every time a guest comes on, and I probably said it twelve times in our two seasons. But like, 
You know, I'm in awe. I, I made dinner last night for um, uh, our friend Charlie Widows. Hello, Charlie. You listen to this podcast and, and his wife. Hey. And, you know, I cook. And hey, it's like Charlie. I made a I made a dinner for four, <laughs> and it took me to make four. You know, essentially six portions. Of course, I'm Jewish. I overcook, and there's enough food for like twice as many people. But like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like from from the moment the clock went up, like that was a four hour affair. And I made basically pork loin with a ginger apple compote, you know, uh, uh, some braised cabbage, some uh, delicata squash with chanterelles. Like I didn't really make all that much, and it took me four hours, and I was really efficient. Like I was proud of myself that I was able to still have much of my day to do other stuff. And I just am awe with what you guys can do in the sheer amount of time. Like how do you – I mean I know this sounds crazy, but how do you do it? Well, you know, part of my, um, part of my planning, I really – Focused, and this happened after that sausage episode where I got the the damn cow's plate, and it was it was a bad piece of meat, and I tried to do too much in too little time. Sausage is a loser, I got to tell you. You know, and it was so funny because the guy, um, you know, the carne man, he was like, "Oh, sausage, but beef sausage is such a Jewish thing to do." He said, he that, said like, that in the when we were all standing around. Yeah, he said he's like, "That's such a Jewish thing to do, like beef sausage." I don't know. Oh, like as a substitute because we don't eat pork, we always do the beef version of like. Yeah, he was like, "Oh, that's such a traditional Jewish thing to do," and so I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to come out strong with my first Jewish dish," and then I just just oh, just ran it into the ground. But um, you know, I think that I started planning my prep list like by the minute. Like, okay, if it goes off and I have an hour and a half left and I don't have this done, I really need to push. And then when it gets to one hour and 15 minutes, I need to have this thing done. And so you've seen Kelsey has shown some of her book. If you follow her on social media, she has some of her book and she shows some of the stuff that's going on. If you look at my book, it's like a timetable. It's like a countdown exactly where I need to be. And so that last 20 minutes and that's all plating. So it's unbelievable. So I will say back to the other thing. I know we already left some, but hindsight, I can look at it and say, oh, I don't think the producer's meant to do it. But in the moment, I was just like, what? The, like, why are my waffle irons not working? Like, why is this not working? Like, you think in your head that they're totally screwing with you, but I don't think they are. Did you get to meet Coach Cal? No, I did not get to meet Coach Cal, but we did. The contestants and I all, we snuck into the locker room. And, um, like, I got up in, like, Knox's little box like his little locker I don't know what you'd call that his little box in the locker room and like <laughs> got some pictures and we all laid down in the middle of the floor I touched the trophy which I know is probably completely against the rules but I like rubbed the trophy like it was a little genie I mean that was like that was that could have been one of the highlights of the show for me the behind the scenes stuff that nobody saw right this was last season so you would have gotten Kevin Knox that's right that's right that's right yeah oh yeah, yeah. I, d- I was just like I Knox love, is there I another Knox that. No, yeah, it was last season. So I, yeah, I, I thought he was great. So I was like, I want my picture with that, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I can like go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 go, no, please. I was going to say like the first UK memory I have, like really have, other than going with my grandfather to games, is I went to Jamal Mashburn's senior night, but he wasn't even <laughs> a senior. He was a junior, but they let him have senior night junior because that was back when everybody stayed for four years, you know, and they, he left his junior year and I, my dad scalped tickets. And so like my brother and dad and I, none of us got to sit together and I was a little kid and I sat next to the nicest man who was an assistant coach for like the UK uh, tennis team and watched Jamal Mashburn's um, senior night. It was awesome. How cool is that? You know? Yeah, it was great. 
one of the one of the pivotal moments of my uh, like you know, romantic relationship with my wife, we we met at college was when she at a party just said, I can name every member of the 96 national champion starting five. <laughs> and I was like, no way. And she rambled them off. She was like, Walter McCarty, Ron Mercer, Derek Anderson, uh, Tony Delk and, and like, uh, Nazi Muhammad or something like that. And I was like, Oh my God, you were like, we need to get married right now. You, you Kentucky girls love, love, well, I I wanted to follow up because I I found out on Twitter that, um, the crowd had to wear all UK apparel for the, for that episode, but there were U of L fans in the audience that would, it was like, it was like, (laughs) which was like sacrilegious, I feel like. And so I have to ask you if you had to wear Cardinal gear to a show or an event, would you do it, or would you walk out and say, "Uh-uh, I am not wearing U of L gear. I will not do it." Oof. I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have worn it. I don't know if I would have walked off because, um, you know, the opportunity to win one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars—it's pretty good. <laughs> um, but I would have had to have been very vocal. You know, I would have had to have my my L upside down the whole time. Like I would not have. I wouldn't have been a happy person. Um, but I, I will I, say. If UK is not in it, if Murray State's not in it, I'm going to root for Louisville because they still are, you know, I'm still Kentucky proud. See, that's an old thing, Tom. When I was growing up, like my grandfather went to Duke and like, and he's Duke class of 43, he's still alive. And, you know, in our family, college, ACC basketball was just everything. It was, we would hang out, we'd sit around the living room, no matter which game, it was, it was Virginia Wake, it didn't matter, Georgia Tech, this one, different cousins ended up going to different colleges but when it came time for the tournament tom no matter my grandfather went to duke he rooted for carolina in the other bracket you root for the conference because the conference or the region is still you you all they always rooted for uva over anybody else or or um and that, that was the thing and then it got like really vicious and like you as a wake fan probably never roots for duke no but uh if it is you know so my wife, she loves UK basketball. And the weird thing about UK basketball is that Rick Pitino went to the other side and is not, was, sorry, was U of L. And I always wondered like, Hey, would you root for Rick Pitino and U of L because it's Rick Pitino who won you guys a championship and is like a God in UK, UK. She's like, Oh yeah, I love Rick Pitino. Like he's, I, I root for him every time. So that, that kind of confuses the issue is like yes there is this blood rivalry between uk and ufl but also like the patron saint of uk basketball is the head coach for a while at ufl yeah but we can't root for duke no matter what yes i'm sorry you have to tell your grandfather i'm so sorry okay christian leitner yeah christian Christian leitner it it ruined it for me as a child you're gonna break the heart of this orthodox charleston jew so um (laughs) it's uh hey who's who who is your best who's your best friend on the show uh, you know, Kelsey and I have known each other for years. We worked oh, together right. in New York City, uh, um, same restaurant. Um, we spent time together. We watched each other's dogs when the other would leave town. Like we've been, we've been buddies for a long time. Kel um, and I were pretty close. Uh, I mean, everybody. It's hard to say. Everyone was so close. Um, everybody always like we tasted each other's foods. We'd like go over each other's dishes. It was this weird 
competition that I wasn't expecting, but that was uh, just absolutely rewarding. Um, yeah, but I would say Kelsey and I were super close. When you found out you were going to be the only Kentucky chef, uh, what, what kind of position did you feel like? Were you happy? Were you, were you a little like, uh, uh, you know, like scared about being the representative for Kentucky? Um, I don't know that I was scared. I, there was definitely some added pressure, but I kind of felt like a little tour guide. It's like, all right, we're going to drive from Lexington to Louisville. Like, guess what y'all we're getting ready to go past this huge castle. There's no castle in Kentucky, Sarah. I swear to God, there's a castle in Kentucky. Like, you know, and so they all drive past the castle, you know, like, um, you were rolling into, you know, where the set is. It was just, it was in Louisville near, um, like the U of L stadium. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the first time we go past there, I'm like, this is U of L, you know? So it was pretty cool to be kind of like the tour guide, but it was also some added pressure because, that meant that there was only one person from Kentucky to root for. And I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to let everybody down, I guess you could say. So tell us about freight house. Yeah, actually that was my, that was going to be my question. uh, Yeah. 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 So freight house, um, it's in an old vegetable depot. So it's actual old train station. Um, we've been open almost four years. We source as much as we can locally, um, almost everything within a day's drive. Uh, you know, we do a lot of our own fermenting, um, pickle, you know, just everything you would see at your normal kind of fancy pants restaurant, but we're serving, um, you know, we're serving really traditional food. The cool part about Paducah and about the freight house is it's not Southern. It's not Midwestern. It's not Rust Belt. You know, we have our location is, you know, I'm closer to Illinois than I am to, yes. uh, I can be in Illinois in five minutes and be in Missouri in 20 minutes, Nashville in 30 minutes or Tennessee 30 minutes. So I am right there on the tip. And so I can pull from all these other regions. And so freight house, uh, we just serve whatever we feel like, whatever tastes good. I notice on the uh, menu, the final item is chicken and not box waffles. Yeah. We're (laughs) also smart at Um, like (laughs) full blown, we, we name things, um, vulgar names and we are smart asses and we are really playful and, um, it's a really casual atmosphere, but we're using really, um, you know, really, I would say fine dining technique to serve, you know, food that, uh, you wish your grandmother could have cooked. It's a really big menu. I'm always curious how chefs assemble menus. Um, you know, you have your classics here. Uh, like when you're, how do you assemble a menu? Like, I mean, this, this is just, uh, we go in, we take it for granted, but every menu you go into a restaurant, the, a chef has made a decision either to include or exclude or to be, to offer a limited number of uh, you know, entrees or to go small plates or, I mean, what's, I, I would love your unified theory of menu creation. Well, I think it starts at the base of dish, dish creation. So each individual dish, so I kind of just go into the walk-in and I'll go into dress storage and say, what do I have that needs to be used? What did this farmer just bring me? And so it doesn't always start with the protein. A lot of times my dishes start with the side items. with Because those are so important, you know, on a Southern table. And they were, you know, and even on, you know, the Jewish Southern table, they are so important, those things. So it kind of starts with the vegetables and goes from there. And then we find someone who's a producer of a protein. We pair that with it. Um, but 
you know, Paducah is not like New York or Chicago. Um, we have had trouble, you know, influencing people to, to share a lot of items. Everybody really wants to get their own appetizer, their own you know, entree, their own dessert. So we have increased the size. The menu must, used to be smaller, but I increased the size to try and get people to realize that they can share a bunch of stuff and have just as much fun and actually taste, you know, a lot more things because, um, yeah, but those classic things, if you notice the classics, you notice the Asian carp on there, that's our local mm. fish that has, um, but it's an invasive fish and people around here were not used to eating it. It's been on the menu since day one. We've never taken it off. Um, not that, not that version of it, but a different version, different versions all the time. And then the other stuff we just rotate whatever we feel like. Sometimes we'll change the menu every day. Sometimes we'll change the menu here in service. And, you know, we just, whatever we have, that's what we do. So I, I, we talked about it earlier on the, on the pod, Sarah, but uh, I found some science to back up that not only are you a badass uh, in terms of picking, uh, identifying smells or, or tastes or anything like that, but apparently women are at, at reproductive ages or at, they, they found science to say that women are significantly by sometimes magnitudes of 11 times better at identify their sense of smell and taste than men. And I just wanted to first congratulate you on getting the 12 flavors, but also, did you know that you had this talent? So I, so I have always been somebody who smells. So like if we're drinking bourbon, we're sitting around with all my buddies, we're drinking bourbon, um, which I'm pregnant right now, so I'm not doing. But Mazel tov, everybody anyway. else is already drinking. Hey. Thank you. Um, everybody else is already drinking. I've still got my nose in that, you know, in that glass. I'm still smelling. Um, and you know, it's same thing with wine. Everybody else, they already have jumped into drinking the wine. I'm still sitting there smelling. I think that my nose has always been more, um, you know more active, I guess you could say. And maybe it's my healthy Jewish nose. Maybe it's, you know, that's a little bigger <laughs> than other people. So, uh, but I've always, yeah, I've always been able to smell things really well. And, and like you said, I guess I am at reproductive age because when I got home, my husband and I, you know, got knocked up. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on that. It's, it's, it's a, Thanks. it's a thing. What is, what are you craving now today? Because, my wife, when she got pregnant, it was just every day was a new thing or an aversion. So what in, in Sarah's uh, home right now, when she opens the fridge and she sees this, she is craving that or she sees it and she's like, oh, I can't have that. Man, cottage cheese. Like <laughs> I can't get enough cottage cheese, which is so odd because I've always liked cottage cheese. But now I'm like, well, cottage cheese for breakfast, for dinner. And yeah. And then it, it's always kind of that weird thing. Um, I've been eating a lot of ruffles and uh, Dean's French onion dip. That too. I love that. Like that, that I, I love that trashy eat. like French onion dip from the damn container, oh God, like yeah. whatever that. The little like that stuff is so dish, good. Right? That is so good. I mean, that is one of my truly yeah. embarrassing then, favorite foods. And then all the things that I can't have, like I never eat deli meat, but I want deli meat. Oh, so bad right now, like I just want like a huge. Like, you know, like not even a fancy sandwich from a great place. Like it's not like prosciutto or, you know, or something like that. I want like bad want, like burger, a, turkey on. Lunchables. Like you a, just want like a thing of Lunchables. Oh, yeah. 
oh my god, I would kill some Lunchables right now. Now I'm craving them. <laughs> another favorite Sorry, of mine, man. by the way. Yes. Um, I had uh, another question for you, Sarah, here about where you're from. Uh, you mentioned that it's on the Illinois border. Uh, and I know in Louisville, you drive five minutes and you're in Indiana um, and you're across the, you're, you're on the Ohio River. So I've had kind of these arguments with people who live in Ohio that Louisville is the South. But he point the my friend Brian Winhurst, who grew up in Akron, Ohio, is like, no, it's Midwestern. You're right there on the border of Indiana, and people in Indiana wouldn't consider themselves like Southern. And so I wanted to know from you, because you grew up on the border of Illinois, which I don't think many people, when they think of South, they don't think of Illinois. They think of Chicago, right, and the, and the Great Lakes. So what would I uh, – when I ask you, is Kentucky the South or are certain parts of Kentucky the South and then others are either Midwestern or North? You know, it's – it's strange. We are in the South, but we're also very proud of the fact that we never joined the Confederacy. So, like, there's this, you know, there's, like, this, we were, like, the middle of it. We're like, oh, we never joined the Confederacy, but we still are a Southern state. So, you know, I think it's just, um, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of y'all going on. It's a lot slower. Like, I think if you went up to Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, you've got that fast-paced life. Everything slows down in Kentucky. Life is simple and life is good and life is easy. Not that it is in other places, but um, I think it has that Southern mentality about it. So, yeah, I would say we're the South, but we have the advantage of pulling from all these other regions for our cuisines and for, um, you know, for who we're going to root for, for, a, you know, national sports teams because we don't have any of our own. So we have all these other great things to to do with the states surrounding us. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always, you know, Kentucky is not unlike Tennessee. It's actually even more like this that I've always seen it as this weird amalgamation because, like, I have a very close friend who grew up in Wolf County, which is way on the east side, and it's Appalachia. She grew up in the Hollers, and that bears mm-hmm. absolutely no resemblance to life where you are, where you're kind of, I call you like kind of St. Louis Cardinals diaspora, like that part of the Mid South that includes Memphis. And you guys and, you know, Cape Girardeau and, you know, a little closer to Nashville or whatever. But like, I mean, do you even do y'all? I mean, Memphis, they call it the Mid-South. Do you ever say that you I mean, is the Mid-South a thing where you live? Yeah, I think that we're just like the river bottoms. The river bottoms. You know, Paducah is right. Yeah, Paducah is right where the Tennessee and the um, Ohio meet. And then just downstream, you've got the Mississippi. There's the Kentucky. So um, right there at Cairo, Illinois, which is you know, 20 minutes from where my husband grew up, which is 20 minutes from where I grew up. So, you know, it's, we're right here where all the rivers are. We flood out all the time. Our city is surrounded by a huge flood wall, but I grew up and spent a lot of time in Eastern Kentucky and it is the exact opposite. There are hills and mountains and the dialect is different and the people are different, but, um, it's still all Kentucky. Yeah, this is, um, this is this is I can't believe that Kevin we got to go to the restaurant wars uh, episode. Uh, do you have any do you have any re- residual thoughts from restaurant wars and how how crazy that was? You were at Thistle, right? Yeah, it was at Thistle. I did friend in the house at Thistle. Um, no, but probably that if you guys had been at my table, I would have. My husband is like big followers of y'all, and I've seen your picture a million times, so I probably would have freaked out. 
because there were some other people in our, you know, in our room and, and I got very, I'm, I'm very easily excitable. So <laughs> I'm probably a bit like, ah, but, uh, you know, it was, it was strange. Um, everybody looks forward to that. You may get to the final eight and you're in restaurant wars, but, um, you know, when they decided to do it with 12, it was, we were all a little like, Oh man, they took the, you know, the fine, you've made it to the final eight to be in restaurant wars. Mm-hmm. So it was a little disheartening because that's something that everybody who's watched the show, like, you know, you've made it to that point. Um, I don't think that they're going to do that again because it was a total shit show. Like, <laughs> you know, like we said, the producers, you know, they're trying to give everybody the best thing they can so that we can put the best food forward. But now having to deal, they had to deal with three restaurants instead of two and they had the exact same amount of staff as they would. So I don't think that they, I think they probably enjoyed it less than we did. It was kind of your, your coming out party. Was that episode when you were putting your arms around the service people and just hugging them and just saying like, uh, treating them like human beings in ways that like, it's really hard in that circumstance to like, keep your cool and, and be, uh, humble and say like, you know what, this is really tough and we're all in this together. Yeah, um, I have to say that's kind of where, I mean, in addition to your demographic, um, affinity, uh, you know, that I was drawn to you. Uh, I, I, I think judging people on how they sort of behave in those moments. Um, uh, Tom, our friend, Rob Mahoney always says that he judges people on two things, how they treat wait staff and how they think of Al Horford's game as a player. And then, and then if, you, <laughs> yeah. if you're on the right side of those issues, no matter whatever your shortcomings that you certainly are. And it was, it was actually really wonderful to see, like I, given the amount of pressure, given your excitability, um, for you to handle it with that kind of grace was just so appealing on a human level. And I, I don't mean this as flattery. Like it was just, it was a heartwarming moment. I mean, we met some of the folks who were, who were assigned to, to be waitstaff. We know that wasn't where they come from. We know they're not professional servers. Like we know they were put in an impossible and really stressful situation. And you can play it any number of ways, right? Like you can just be a badass or not badass, like just be a hard ass and be really frustrated. And that, by the way, that's a totally reasonable way to behave. I mean, you're, you're, you're $125,000 on the line and these people don't know what the hell they're doing, or you can handle it the way you did. And I, I just, it, it spoke to your, I really, it's honestly, it's one of the nicest displays of behavior I've ever seen on reality television. Well, thank you very much. You know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, as chefs and owners of our own businesses, we expect a lot from people, but you have to be able to say like there, what is a reasonable expectation? And you have to go for that. Um, you know, these guys were banquet servers. Um, it wasn't what they signed up to do. And you have to think we've had cameras following us around for weeks now. You know, it's like all of a sudden they've stepped into this environment and they've got that, Oh shit, we're going to be on national TV. And it's an added pressure for them too. And, and they really didn't want to disappoint. They wanted to do their best for everyone. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. It makes me feel good that you that you thought I was a nice person. <laughs> so, well, what is your uh, now that we've we've got to the end of this interview? I I want to give you the platform to uh, talk about your favorite Kentucky basketball player ever. Now that Kevin and our Kevin and I are basketball writers, uh, is there a particular Kentucky Wildcat story beyond the Jamal Mashburn awesome one that you you relayed? But is there a, a particular player or a jersey or a, or an autograph that like this guy is is your icon? 
Well, um, you know, gosh, I mean, so many of them. Um, there are a lot of Kentucky, really good Kentucky players. Yes. There's so many. I mean, there's like, there's like, I was reading an article the other day and you know, it was a Pelicans article and they were talking about like all the people they had brought on to try and help, um, you know, the brow out. And there was like player after player of UK people that had come on to try and help them out. So it just gets so hard because you know, it used to be that you weren't able to follow that many into like the professional field, but now you get players left and right every year, just going in, going in. Um, I'll tell you. So, I mean, there's so much, but I have to, I have to ask y'all too. So you guys have a question for me. I'm going to answer with a question. What do you guys think about John Morant? You think that he's going to go like high from Murray State? You think he's going to go high in the draft pick? Yeah, but- he's, who I'm, he's like who I'm loving this season because Murray State is about 45 minutes from Paducah. So I'm loving the Cats always. Um, I really like PJ Washington. I think he's been bringing it. Hero, I'm such a fan of Hero. But John Morant is who I'm like totally digging this season. I mean, I got to tell you. So, I mean, the word I get is, you know, for a long time it was like, oh, the three Duke guys will go top three. And Morant has like really vaulted up. And, you know, honestly, I think after Zion and, you know, RJ Barrett's a guy, but like even if like the Phoenix Suns went to number two, I mean, I, I guess they take Barrett, but. I mean, I think he's the best point guard in the draft from what I understand. And you're talking to someone who's watched very little college basketball, but I've been listening to scouts. And so by virtue of not listening, uh, watching college basketball, I just basically ask any scout I can find, like, tell me what's going on. So I don't sound like an idiot. And like, there's a huge uh, Morant kind of Morant philia out there among, among a lot of NBA college scouts that he's just, you know, at six, three, like a really good point guard. And, um, you know, like the best point guard in the draft. I'm thinking he's like, you know, he's sold selling out the arena. He's like dunking over people. It's pretty, it's pretty cool to watch. So, Can you believe yeah. Sarah that he and Zion Williamson were on the same AAU team? Oh, they were? Yeah. Oh my I didn't God. know that. Yeah. Yeah. They were on the same AAU team and Morant was kind of looked over and that's why he went no, no offense to Murray state, but those two guys were on the same AAU team and yet <laughs> like Zion Williamson became a sensation and all these scouts were looking at, you know, uh, their AAU team. And yet like John Morant couldn't get heavily. Rec- he was not ranked by recruiting services at ESPN rivals or two forty seven sports. And the only major NCAA, uh, division one offer came from South Carolina. And yet now in a year's time, he is maybe a, a top three prospect. It's crazy. It is, it is insane. I mean, it really is. Um, just to go from obscurity to yeah, projected top three in that kind of amount of time. I mean, it, it, it's it, I, we can't I, we can't overstate that. It is really crazy. You go from Paducah, Kentucky, to being a nationally recognized chef, uh, kind of like Sarah Bradley. So that is that is a story. I love Kentucky. It's great. It's uh, Sarah. You are uh, a great representative of Kentucky. I'm just going to say, and of the it. Jewish um, people. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love it. I I mean. It was like when you call, when you guys started saying the Paducah Jew. And did you guys get my jersey? I did. I did. I was like, I was going to thank you before the show. And then I said to wait for the show. Yes, absolutely. I have my Bradley's. And by the way, I do appreciate the numerology, the number 18. 
Yes. So, Tom, number 18 Thank is... Thank you. Is, I was hoping that would not be lost. This is Omri Caspi's <laughs> number, um, who was the, the first Israeli player in the NBA. Um, in the Jewish, uh, in Hebrew, letters have both letter and number significance, and they have values. So the word the word for life, which is chai, is an 8 plus a 10. So you'll, you'll, um, you'll find various... Uh, when you see somebody wearing 18, it is often an expression of Jewish numerology. Um, we're weird that way. How cool is that? So I appreciate it. Well, I, thank you. Sarah, Sarah texted, uh, the pack your knives, um, uh, account and the hotline. hotline. Yes. And she said, can I send you you guys some stuff? And I, and I deliberately gave you Kevin, gave her your address because I just had a feeling that, that surprising you at your doorstep was something really, really cool. So that is, that was a super gift. So thank you so much, Sarah, for that. We're good because I was worried you guys might think I was a little like stalker. No, God, never. <laughs> like texting, like hitting you up, like let me get your address. I got to send you something. You know, you never knew. So if you were truly stalking us, you have worse problems because like we are the wrong people to stalk. I mean, <laughs> yeah, not very interesting. Yeah. So this is I, I was I kind of teased it at the beginning before the show, Kevin. But uh, we hosted the Charlotte. I live here in Charlotte, uh, Sarah, and the NBA All Star Game was here this oh. weekend, and Kevin screwed me. Screwed. Just screwed me over. How 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 did I do that? Last year you had the most amazing brunch in LA for the All Star Weekend, and so that was the bar. Was I had to meet that bar? Kevin Arnovitz had an amazing brunch spread on the Sunday of All Star Weekend, where he invited you know people inside and outside the league, and it was an amazing, amazing brunch, and it was just like the best. And so this year I had people coming up to me and saying, "Hey, what are you doing uh, for All Star Weekend?" And I'm like, "You know what, Kevin? Screw you." Like you, 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 you set the bar so high. It was impossible for me to, to achieve the heights of Kevin Arnovitz and, and you were, you had your, your house redone and I just couldn't compete. So you know what I did? I changed the game, Kevin. I just wrote up a scouting report on the city of Charlotte food and drink. And I gave it to, I sent an email out to like a bunch of our friends. And that was what I did. Cause you know what? I could not play your game. So what I did was I did a scouting report on Charlotte's food scene and then you know what? That's why that's why I said in the beginning of the show, Kevin, that you screwed me over this weekend. But I, you know what? I did OK. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry for the uh, unintentional uh, <laughs> unintentional screwing there. But, um, yeah. but I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to expose people to the culinary treasures of Charlotte, North Carolina. I might very well be there, uh, depending on the first round matchups. Have you been here to Charlotte, Sarah, ever? I actually used to live in Charlotte. What? I went to Johnson Wells in Charlotte. Yeah. So I lived there. I lived like out in Noda before Noda was much of anything. There was like one, a couple of buildings that have been redone, but I hear, I haven't been back, but I hear that it's like a completely different area now. Yes, was Noda there. Brewing Company there yet? No, no, just the wow. gin mill, like where those really cool apartments. And I lived out, you know, lived out there and they had like a pizza place and a fish taco place and a really good, um, Jamaican restaurant. And that was about it. Yeah. Noda's a, a, a real, it's a great spot for, for great food and drink. Uh, Noda, the, the art district of, of, of Charlotte. But I, I, another top chef thing real quick is that, uh, LeBron James and all of the celebrities like all met up at five church in downtown Charlotte, sorry, uptown Charlotte. And that is the restaurant of former top chef competitor contestant jamie lynch who is famous for doing the hashtag no immunity giving up his immunity that was his restaurant so all the nba the big names in the nba had a big meal uh two nights ago at five church the top chef restaurant 
That's pretty well, cool. I, I have to have. Are there are there any other like NBA people that are huge Top Chef fans? Kevin, we haven't really mined that somehow. Have we have we not asked? I would say that Chris Dempsey, uh, our friend in Denver who's covered the Nuggets for years and uh, now now does so for the Altitude Network, is a huge Top Chef fan. Uh, there are uh, I, I heard from our friend Seth Partnow in Milwaukee, who was on the front office of the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, who was thrilled to see us. So I'm trying to think of others uh, in in the league. Players? I don't know. Well, just NBA players. That we know they're foodie NBA players. We know they're foodie NBA players. So we'll point them to Paducah uh, at the freight, the freight house for sure. But that, all right, all right. They, they travel so much, Sarah, and they go to so many cities that by ne- by definition, they kind of have as, as much as they travel, they kind of have to know uh, the, the best places around the arenas in, in all of the big cities in America. Yeah, I would be, I mean, that's like a, that would be a dream job. You know, I'm only like five, four, so I don't know that I'll ever get to play in the NBA, but, and I'm sick, but, uh, but I would love the food aspect of that job. Like, cause I'm sure they can get a table anywhere they want to, you know? Yes. It'd be pretty great. Uh, Sarah, thank you a ton for joining us. Well, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was so cool to get to talk with y'all. I listen to you guys every week. Now all of a sudden, I'm like chatting with you. <laughs> well, that's the, the amazing thing about podcasts and uh, social media and, uh, you know, doing this show in 2019. Well, best of luck for the, through the rest of the way. We'll be, uh, we'll be rooting for you as the rep of Kentucky. Um, and we hope to talk soon. Um, and Kevin, we got to make a trip to Paducah. We do. That would be fun. Do a little Murray State Paducah action. Yeah. Drive the hour. Yeah. All right. It's not far from Louisville at all. Good job. Awesome. All right, Kevin, take us out. This is Pack Your Knives. Mm-hmm.